Illusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, and welcome to another week of Diffusion, the science show that brings you the topics that other science shows dare not touch. So if you're listening to us on Thursday morning on 2SER across Sydney, across Australia on the Community Radio Network, or around the globe on our podcast, sit back and relax as we deliver all the science news you can handle in the next half hour. I'm Sasha Steltzer, and this week we're going to tackle the topics of hot rock power and carbon credits. But first up... Feast was held in Canberra last week, and I'm not referring to the buffet-style feast, something even more exciting, the Forum for European-Australian Science and Technology Cooperation. The list of speakers included Julie Bishop, Minister for Education, Science and Training, Dr Jim Peacock, the Chief Scientist of Australia, and lots of big wigs from the Australian Research Council, the British Council, the European Research Council and the National Health and Medical Research Council, among others, and more CEOs, doctors and professors than you can poke a stick at. Diffusion spoke to Dr Lloyd Anderson, Director of Science Engineering and Environment at the British Council, about the science work they do around the world. And really we have two strands. One is um, sort of scientist-to-scientist collaboration and mobility and exchange of knowledge and ideas and that sort of thing. So that's kind of links programs, exchange programs, lab exchanges. And then the other side, we were calling understanding science and society, but really it's kind of looking at the science as the big picture, as how it impacts on people's lives, how it affects society and so on. Actually at the time we sort of invented that term, the UK was still very much locked into this model called public understanding of science, where, you know, the scientists dropped a few crumbs of knowledge down to the masses who were sort of somewhere under the table and who gobbled it up sort of willingly. And it was a really condescending model, I think, that somehow, you know, the public was stupid and once they understood something, they'd come to love it. And, I mean, you know, we'd had BSE you know, mad cow disease, we'd had GM food, and people were really concerned. And it wasn't that they just didn't understand. In fact, all surveys suggested that the more people knew, the more they worried, you know. So this was a whole area about democracy. It was about, you know, how decisions were made, where the evidence for those decisions was, you know, were the scientists being listened to by the politicians, or were they only listening to some? So that whole thing about you know, a democratically accountable science, I thought was very interesting. And we ran a number of talks in different countries around issues like consumer protection and risk and ethics and so on, which we called towards a democratic science. (laughs) And I remember that this public understanding of science model was under scrutiny in the UK because of the GM crops problem, you know, and the Frankenstein foods and all of that. And so I just thought, oh, let's be brave and just say that actually this model doesn't work and we should be trying something that was much more democratic. I'm most proud that that had some some influence or some bearing. 
The only thing I'm a bit disappointed about is that afterwards they simply replaced it with the term dialogue. There should be dialogue. And I'm not convinced that that's right either, because just because you set up spaces where scientists talk to public, do the public really get to say anything to the scientists to make the scientists change what they're doing? And in a way, actually, I'm not too sure the problem is with the scientists. It's more with what's done with the science in the public's name. There's nothing wrong with looking at genetic engineering, but if a seed comes company then decides to use it in certain ways and introduce a sort of terminator gene and you know that's those are the issues really so I, i'm not too sure having a dialogue is, yeah. is, is going to get us towards a more accountable process and i mean a lot of it is about evidence-based policy it's about the way that governments and politicians and so on listen to the evidence that's given to them by the scientists and look for the truth and act on that in that those sorts of ways because there's so many vested interests at play. that, And that's where I think the public becomes suspicious, really. And what's the general public's perception of scientists in the UK? I mean, they've ranked different types of people. People that the public trust most are doctors. You know, they're at the top. But scientists sort of are very close to them, sort of something about sort of white lab coats. <laughs> the media, I have to say, are somewhere very close to the bottom, <laughs> along with politicians. So in terms of... Who do they trust? You know, I think scientists have a good standing. The, the trouble is, is that I think in, it's back to this disconnection with society, is that people think, oh, scientists on the whole are honest people, they're neutral and they're independent and so on. But they don't see them as really engaging very much in the social issues. So they sort of stand back in their labs, give out the data or whatever, and, and that's it. I mean, we've had some, some interesting ones like the MMR vaccine not long ago where we had one scientist is saying, yep, it's linked to autism. Really, I mean, the, you know, it was about the media being a bit naughty. They wanted to set up a debate, so they had one scientist on one side saying MMR causes autism. They had millions of scientists on the other side saying it didn't. But in the studio, it was a one-to-one, so the debate becomes distorted. Yeah. So that, that's a problem, but that's, that's always going to be a problem. And, you know, it's always going to be more interesting to see a controversy in terms of two sides of a, a debate. I think the other thing is, the, sorry, just the, the, the public do kind of want black and white, you know. So they, you know, given a beef burger and mad cow disease, <laughs> um, people want, you know, what is it, is it safe? And they don't really want to hear from the scientists, wow, you know, there's this probability then... So they just want to know, it's safe or it's not safe. And of course, scientists can get forced into making statements like, yes, it is safe, and of course it turns out not to be. In Australia, the public tends to look up to and celebrate sports people, whereas scientists are relegated to being smart and they do good things, but they're not admired in the same way. Is that the case in the UK as well? Absolutely. And I mean, it's not, as a career, it's, it's not attractive. I mean, nobody thinks scientists make lots of money you know <laughs> if you want to make lots of money you go into the city or you set up in business or whatever um they don't think it's a stable career either um because i think most people know that you know they're on short-term contracts so it's you know it's not a very secure future it's not a future that pays very well and i think there is this problem which maybe sets in earlier at school is that science is kind of unhip it's interesting if you in london i'm sure it's it's true here too. You know, you go to the science museum, and there are just hundreds of kids, absolutely fascinated and enthused, up to about the age of, you know, 13, 14. 
And they're not enthused in anything. <laughs> well, true. <laughs> but, but something, you know, to me, something happens then. And I suspect it's music, the other sex, and, and all these things that become more interesting. And science then is sort of something that geeks do, or it's something, it's, you know, it's really unhip and uncool. And to, oh, how uh, wrong they are. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of socially dysfunctional or whatever it might be. You know, and I think, I think actually that's something we've been trying very hard to do is to break that stereotype. And, and, and role models are good if you can get, you know, if you've got engaging like people. Like Brian Cox? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You get people like that and they just sort of enthuse another generation, which is great. The only problem I'd say for science communication in the UK is that it seems to be one thing or the other. You know, either you're a good researcher or you're a good communicator, there's still this problem that somehow you can't be seen to be both. So someone who is a good communicator, by definition, they must be a flaky scientist. I think it's very unfair. I think people can be good at both. As do we. That was Dr Lloyd Anderson, Director of Science, Engineering and Environment at the British Council, in Australia for FEAST, the Forum of European-Australian Science and Technology Cooperation. He spoke about increasing collaboration between the UK and Australia, by bringing more UK scientists to our shores. Let's hope that one day UK scientists outnumber UK backpacks. May I have your attention, please? May I have your attention, please? Will the person before jaws all on the floor like pam like tommy just burst in the door we started whooping her ass first than before they first were divorced sewing her over furniture it's the return of the oh wait no wait you're kidding he didn't just say what i think he did did he and dr dre said nothing you idiots dr dre's dead he's locked in my basement feminist women love eminem chicka 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 slim shady i'm sick of him look at him walking around grabbing his you know what flipping the you know who yeah but he's so cute though yeah Got a couple of screws up in my head loose But no worse than what's going on in your parents' bedrooms Sometimes I want to get on TV and just let loose But can't, but it's cool for Tom Green to hump a dead moose My bum is on your lips, my bum is on your lips And if I'm lucky, you might just give it a little kiss And that's the message that we deliver to little kids And expect them not to know what a woman's is Of course they're gonna know what in the course is By the time they hit fourth grade, they got the Discovery Channel Don't they? We ain't nothing but mammals Well, some of us cannibals Other people open like cantaloupes But if we can hump dead animals and antelopes And there's no reason that a man and another man can't elope But if you feel like I feel, I got the antidote Women wave your pantyhose, sing the chorus And it goes I'm the slim shady, yes I'm the real shady Or you are the slim shadies that just imitating So won't the real slim shady please stand up Please stand up, please stand up I'm the slim shady, yes I'm the real shady Or you are the slim shadies that just imitating So won't the real slim shady please stand up Please stand up, please stand up Will Smith don't got a cuss in his raps to sell records nope. Well I do, so came and Think I give a damn about a Grammy? Half of you critics can't even stomach me, let alone stand me. But when? What if you win? Wouldn't it be weird? Why? So you guys can just lie to get me here so you can sit me here next to Britney Spears? Christina Aguilera better switch me chairs so I can sit next to Carson Daly and Fred Durst and hear him argue over who she gave to first. Little put me on blast on MTV. Yeah, he's cute, but I think he's married to Kim. I should download her audio on MP3 and show the whole world how you gave him an MP. All you do is annoy me, so I have been sitting here to destroy you. And there's a million of us just like me, who cuss like me, who just don't give a f like me, who dress like me, walk, talk, and act like me. It just might be the next best thing, but not quite me.
A recent news poll survey revealed that 79% of Australians want the government to sign the Kyoto Protocol and an overwhelming 91% want a shift from reliance on coal-fired power to focus instead on renewable energy sources. Darren Osborne speaks to Professor Mike Sandiford about an alternative source that could be powering our light globes within a decade. The increase in greenhouse gases over the past three centuries and its associated effect on the Earth's climate is causing many of us to rethink how we obtain our energy. Whilst alternative energy sources such as wind, solar and nuclear are being explored, one source of energy that remains under the radar is hot rock energy. Professor Mike Sanderford is a research fellow at the School of Earth Sciences at the University of Melbourne. Mike, can you please explain to me first of all what exactly is hot rock energy? Hot rock energy uses the natural heat of rocks buried beneath the um, surface of the earth as a primary energy source. One thing that um, we know um, by drilling deep holes in the earth is that temperatures increase downwards in the earth, usually about um, 20 degrees per kilometre, the temperature gradient. So a kilometre beneath the surface, um, rocks are about 20 degrees hotter than at the surface. But some parts of the earth, um, the geothermal gradient is much, much greater than that. And um, their perspective for geothermal energy, which, we're, um, which we call hot, dry rock energy, so how can we use that energy that's trapped deep in the earth to power our homes? The, the primary mechanism is to is hot, dry rock energy, which is distinguished from typical geothermal energy. We use natural steam, which is venting from the ground, um, typically in volcanic areas, to um, drive turbines to generate electricity. Hot, dry rock uses a different principle, and it's appropriate to Australia where we don't have volcanoes or, or steam venting from the surface, um, of the earth. In hot dry rock what we have to do is inject water into um, hot rock at depth and recover uh, the heated water turned to steam through a process of drilling holes, injection holes and recovery holes or boreholes in, into the ground several kilometres deep um, and it's the steam we recover, recover from the recovery 
um, process that drives our turbines. So is there the potential for Hot Rock Energy to supply all of our power needs? I mean, could it potentially replace all of our coal-fired power stations? There is considerable potential. It does at this stage remain as potential. It's important to know that we have no um, actual electric- electricity generating capacity at the moment. In order to um, make it commercially viable, what we have to do is yield more um, energy than we put into the pumping process. Um, quite obviously, that's the case. And so pumping costs go up considerably the deeper we have to go in search of the hot rock. So in order to make a viable um, energy source, we need to find areas which have a temperature gradient above about 50 degrees per kilometre. That's more than twice the typical temperature gradient. But large areas of Australia, particularly in northern South Australia, seem to have um, unusually high geothermal gradients. The reason for that is that there's a lot of natural radioactivity in the rocks which generates heat over many millions of years, which is now stored in the rocks at depth. One of the um, great difficulties is making sure that the water we inject in, we can recover as steam from a nearby recovery um, well. And that's essentially an engineering task, which is, is yet to be solved in a satisfactory way. So is this energy considered clean when compared to, say, coal or nuclear? Once we get it up and running, of course, the um, electricity that's generated by the process can be used to drive the pumping. And so um, so there, as long as there's a net energy gain, it's clean. Obviously, in the startup procedures, uh, the building of plants and things like that, there's um, u- utilisation of existing energy sources. So it's not necessarily, the startup is not necessarily um, green. In terms of its characterization of an energy source, it's somewhere between a fossil and a renewable. In a sense, we're mining the natural heat within the Earth. That heat is built up through many millions of years of natural radioactivity in in the ground, and um, we're physically mining it. But but the process that we're dealing with is mining such a small quantity of the natural heat in the in the, in the Earth that it'll have negligible effect on the um, thermal structure of the Earth as a whole. You mentioned that it's somewhere between a fossil and a renewable. Does that mean that we could potentially use up a source such as the Moomba area of South Australia within our lifetime or within a few hundred years? Well, in terms of the total heat of the Earth, we we um, uh, not a, we, we won't be using that up. Um, and because the heat itself is being generated constantly in the Earth, um, it'll regenerate itself through natural radioactive decay of... Um, the natural uranium and potassium and thorium that exists in, in, inside the Earth. However, an individual resource may be, may be used up quite quickly. The challenge, of course, is get the, get, get the water to flow out into the rock over reasonable volume from the injection well and then flow back into the recovery well over a large enough volume of rock that it doesn't exhaust the immediate heat surrounding the flow path of the water um, too quickly. Well, there are obviously a number of engineering challenges that need to be overcome. When do you expect to see hot rock energy power stations delivering electricity into our homes? Well, we hope um, that we can have some of the first ones um, operating on um, maybe a five, ten-year time scale. Um, there are companies that are currently drilling in the area of some of the hottest rocks where temperature gradients are up to 60 to 70 degrees per kilometre in the, the area of northern South Australia around the um, Moomba gas field. 
process there, I guess, is to, to try and develop the um, engineering capacity, which can solve some of the some of the technical difficulties associated with the injection and recovery of, uh, of water at, at four kilometres depth. Professor Mike Sandiford, thanks very much for your time. It's a pleasure. That was Professor Mike Sandiford talking to Darren Osborne about a future energy source for Australia, hot rock power. You can discover more about this research currently being conducted in this area by visiting hotrock.anu.edu.au. the news that didn't make the news. Mark, have you got something for us? And joining us in the discussion is Tilly and Charles. Thanks, Sasha. I've just found a story this week. It's quite an interesting one. A couple in Sydney, instead of getting, instead of putting out a gift registry and getting lots of presents for their wedding, they've decided instead that their guests should give them carbon credits. What are carbon credits? Well, carbon credits are a way of compensating for the amount of carbon dioxide you're putting into the atmosphere, causing, you know, the greenhouse effect, global warming, that type of thing. And they say that they wanted these given to them instead of presents. They reckon that they emitted 21 tonnes of carbon dioxide during their wedding. And that's just not the couple alone. Half of that is uh, flying the granny all over oh, over to Australia grannies. from the UK. <laughs> grannies. Yeah. One carbon credit costs $21.15. And a carbon credit, what they're defined as, is uh, using electricity, petrol and other resources causes... Um, carbon dioxide or greenhouse gases to be emitted. And if you buy a carbon credit, that's a way of reducing your impact on the earth. For every carbon credit you buy, one tonne of CO2 is prevented from entering the atmosphere. And what the money here, it goes towards renewable energy projects such as solar or wind, or by purchasing land and trees to soak up that carbon dioxide. I did this once. I set off the amount of carbon dioxide that my car was producing by buying carbon credits with Greenfleet. And they plant trees for you that soaks up the carbon dioxide. Yeah. It's a little bit like a CO2 sponge, eh? So it's like a CO2 sponge, yeah. I think that works. So what other uh, interesting wedding gifts would be good, science perhaps, you know, in the human interest as opposed to material? What do you guys think? Well, what about something like whiteness? If carbon equals blackness, and there's a tonne of it, and it's $21.15, how about sort of bringing in whiteness that sort of neutralises the blackness from the carbon? So you've got, well, maybe not. Anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> moving right along. It's all a little bit ethereal. Weddings are white anyway. Yeah, it's a whole lot of white right there's there a whole at the wedding. A lot of white at the wedding, yeah. Not at your wedding. But the other, the other interesting aspect of that is apparently last week someone was talking about each family spends 13 days shopping and preparing for Christmas. Oh, really? Now, that seems like a huge amount of time, effort and money. I wonder what would happen if instead of doing that the family contributed that amount, if you like, a non-shopping credit uh, and contributed that to the third world. That might be one way of at least sort of offsetting the problems of 
of um, well, the difficulties that the, thir- the first world creates for the third world. What about if shopping centres uh, spent all of the money that they spend on decorations that they put up at the start of November uh, <laughs> and gave that to the third world? We could stop poverty in a you know in one year. What about what about Christmas Carol credits in that case? Oh God! <laughs> Anyone who plays Christmas carols gets fined. My <laughs> My flatmate hates Christmas carols so much she uh, actually shakes with anger when we're in a restaurant. $21 a minute for, for every person in the shopping centre. That seems fair. So it's reducing noise uh, pollution. And, and, and irritation. I mean, if you think of the, the, the three-layer model of um, you know, the financial aspects, the treatment of the environment correctly, and, and uh, treatment of the participants then it could certainly have one of those sort of inverse carbon credity type things in the Christmas carol idea. Jeez, you've overthought this, one, Charles. <laughs> one, one thing I'm worried about with this whole thing is that when they get back from their honeymoon, which you know they've been able to go because they've had these carbon credit points and they're allowed to fly, what, what are they going to toast their bread with? They're not going to have a toaster. I mean, one of the staple <laughs> gifts is going to be gone. Look, they're on a honeymoon. They're not going to be using the toaster. Oh, what? A... <laughs> oh, always, always, Mark. And what? And, and what would happen if, though, if someone hasn't hasn't taken away their ton of carbon, for example, in their carbon credits? Then they've got all this, you know, blackness for. And know. back to the blackness, Charles. <laughs> just you just take some bread and add blackness, and you've got. Well, you don't need toast, do you, really? <laughs> The blackness, yeah, you're freaking me out, Charles. Sadly, it's time for us to say goodbye from the Diffusion Science Radio team. Aww. Diffusion is broadcast by 2SER across Sydney, the community radio network across Australia and all over the world by our podcasts. Check out diffusionradio.com for our podcasts and more info on our stories. Or if you'd like even more info or just want to say hi, just email us at diffusion at 2SER.com. We've been produced in the 2SER studios in Sydney by Sydney's best-looking Movembered mustachioed hunk, Mark West, with plenty of hand-holding from yours truly. I'm Sasha Steltzer. Make sure you tune in next week for more of the best science you'll ever hear. And we'll leave you now with Block Party. See ya. See ya.